Welcome to the Slightly Evil Podcast, where in 30 minutes we aim to arm you with new, non-obvious, fun and effective ways to improve diversity and inclusion in your company. I'm your host, Kidar. Today, our guest is Joe Gerstand. Joe is a strong advocate of resetting the diversity and inclusion conversation. He sees diversity and inclusion as poorly understood and often misunderstood. Joe is a diversity and inclusion speaker, author and advisor. Joe, welcome to the Slightly Evil podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. We have a lot to understand from you because you've been doing this for many years on the road. So in the next half an hour or so, let's try and unpack all of this stuff around diversity and inclusion. We often read articles that try to make a very strong business case for DNI. Also, we hear speakers and experts talking about, you know, why DNI is good for a company's bottom line. But we often find ourselves wondering, how do you create change at companies that already seem to be achieving financial success without a diverse workforce? And I, I think that's a great question. I think it's a lot of question that people bump up against. Um, and I think one of the things to keep in mind is that it's it's a pretty dangerous mindset for an organization or for a leader to think that just because we're financially successful today, that means that we're doing the right things for the future. History is littered with the corpses of organizations that bought into that idea and no longer exist. The original S&P 500, I think 15% of those organizations still exist. So Here's big, respected organizations that were successful until they weren't. So being financial successfully today doesn't mean that we're going to be financially successful tomorrow. Um, it's kind of like looking in the rearview mirror. The one, cha- the one constant is change. And so regardless of how successful we are today, we need to be looking at the future and thinking about are we growing? Are we evolving? And, and one of those changes, one of those constant changes that we're immersed in is demographics. Increasingly true is the fact that talent is diverse and it's only going to get more diverse. Increasingly true is the fact that customers are diverse and getting more diverse. So because of that, it's increasingly true that if you're not good at attracting and engaging and retaining women and people of color, you're competing for a smaller portion of the available talent. That's a fundamentally flawed strategy. If you're not good at doing those things, I think you've got an expiration date on your organization. And there's also several levels to the business case that you alluded to. There's a lot of parts of this conversation, but I think we're still having a hard time making the case and and getting leaders on board with it, which is one of the reasons why we're still having a hard time showing a lot of progress. So what would you shift the conversation towards if it's not really the conventional conversation around business case related to bottom line? What should the new conversation be like? Well, I think um, that varies from organization to organization. I do think one of the pieces of the conversation that has been missing is more directly focused on performance, especially in organizations that care about decision making, problem solving, that talk a great game about innovation. There's no shortage of research drawing very straight lines from that to diverse teams and inclusive settings. If we actually want that innovation, if we really want superior problem solving and decision making, we've got to do a better job of putting diverse groups of people together in inclusive settings. Google released some internal research a couple of years ago under the name Project Aristotle. They talked about the importance of psychological safety being one of the key indicators of a high-performing team. I think another way of saying psychological safety is an inclusive environment. So there's no shortage of research from the academic field and from the business field showing that this is something that has real consequences in performance. There's also the research on covering from Kinji Yoshido and Christy Smith 
showing that even in organizations that say these big, beautiful things about diversity and inclusion, a lot of employees do not feel safe being different at work. So it gets in the way of performance on the individual level. And there's also, it's kind of interesting in that research, it's interesting to know that there's no demographic group in the workplace that doesn't show up in that number. I think we still have a lot of leaders that when you say diversity, you say inclusion, they're immediately thinking of special treatment for certain groups of people. And that's not at all what this work is about. This work is about creating a more inclusive, a more engaging work experience for everyone in the workplace. So I think the business case is part of it. Demographics are part of it, but there's also the performance piece. And again, at the end of the day, we are talking about what we claim to be is our most valuable asset. And so we should care about the work experience, our most valuable asset. It's our biggest investment. Uh, we should care about what that work experience is like. And I think there's I think there's tremendous opportunity there. I think this is one of the most direct routes towards competitive advantage. If you can compete for more talent than your competitors, if you can aggregate more of an input from the talent that you have on your workforce, on your payroll right now, I think that's a pretty big deal. I think that's a pretty big opportunity for advantage. I think the biggest thing standing in the way is that most senior leaders today, because they are expected to get this stuff, say that they get it but they don't. They don't really know what they're talking about. And as an example, I would use the case that it's not at all difficult today to find leaders that say that they're inclusive or that their organization is inclusive. What is hard to find is a leader that can explain what that means, right? We're saying the word. Inclusion has become an incredibly popular word, but it's still a vague, abstract idea. Uh, so until we can get a little bit more clear and concise and consistent with our language, it's kind of hard for us to do stuff and, and figure out what to measure on the way there. And I think all of these different things are, are part of turning the corner. Let's try to talk the language of the CEOs and the leaders who are always looking at dashboards and metrics. What would be, you know, in your opinion, the 80-20 rule of DNI impact? So what 20% of inputs could lead to sort of 80% of impact? There's a few things that, that come to mind that I think are really important levers for us. One of them I already mentioned or at least alluded to was the language that we use. Most organizations don't have a common language. They're using the words diversity. They're using the word inclusion. Everyone's talking about something different. So inside an organization, I think it's really important to have some clear, concise, common language. When we use the word inclusion inside these walls, this is specifically what we're talking about. If, if inclusion is the product that we're trying to create through this work, if we're trying to create an inclusive employee experience, then we should know what the characteristics of that are. How do we know what it looks like? What does it feel? How do, how, how do we know when it shows up? How do we know when we're not included? Most organizations aren't even having that conversation, which is why it's so hard for them to figure out what to do and what to measure on the way there. So putting together a definition, a framework for saying in this organization, this is what an inclusive employee experience is, makes it a whole lot easier to figure out what to do, makes it a whole lot easier to find things to hold people accountable to. I think that's the first, the biggest, the most common mistake that organizations make. They don't get clear on what it is they're trying to accomplish. What does it mean to be included in this organization? And then I think the second piece, and a lot of folks talk about the importance of having leadership, having executive support, having leader buy-in. I think that's an incredibly important part of it, but it's got to be more than just language. We've really got to have leaders who are comfortable and willing and able talking publicly and privately about this stuff. And one of the most important things they've got to do is they've got to be willing to hold their direct accounts reportable. We have more and more CEOs today that are saying poetic things about diversity inclusion, but it drops off right at the next level. They're not willing and able to hold their direct reports accountable. 
we've got to get to the point where we are willing to stop hiring and stop promoting high performers that are not willing to align with inclusive behaviors. And that's not where most organizations are at today. This is still kind of an optional thing. If we really want to turn the corner, we've got to do a better job of that. I think we're still better at hiring and promoting people who do not value diversity and inclusion than we are at actually hiring and promoting people that do value diversity and inclusion. That's got to flip. We've got to turn that around. The third piece is, and this kind of falls kind of into your wheelhouse, but I think one of the biggest opportunities is to, especially with what we know about unconscious decision-making and bias today, is to start redesigning our processes specifically things around the talent equation, who gets invited in for interviews, how we conduct those interviews, how we make hiring decisions, how we evaluate performance. We know a lot more today than we did 10 years ago about unconscious decision-making. And I think we're starting to do a good job of educating people about this stuff, but changing our own individual biases is a pretty difficult body of work. Um, I think the big opportunity is in taking a look at those processes. Um, and redesigning them based on what we know about unconscious bias to remove more and more of the bias from those those decisions. I think those are three of the bigger levers that we have access to right now. People, I'm sure, ask you a lot of very obvious questions around diversity and inclusion, as in what does it mean, you know, what can I do in my organization, so on and so forth. But if we had to ask some tough questions, what would you hope that clients or, or leaders come to you and ask that they never normally ask? What is a tough question that they should be asking themselves or to you or to any advisor that they normally don't? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know if I have a specific question that comes to mind, but I wish they asked more questions. I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but we've gotten to this weird place where it's kind of unacceptable for them not to get it. And so they're terrified of asking questions. Diversity inclusion conversation should be one of the most honest conversations that we have in the workplace. And it's one of the least honest because everyone's afraid of saying something wrong. And so even if it was in one-on-one -on -one conversations, I wish they would ask more questions because none of us start off knowing everything on this conversation. I've been doing this work for a decade and a half. I still don't know everything. I still make mistakes on a regular basis. We've got to be willing and able to make those mistakes as long as we're approaching it from a respectful point of view. I wish more and more leaders did ask questions because I think one of the things that's missing is a deeper comfort level talking about this stuff in front of groups of people, answering questions. Can they, are they willing and able to talk about race? Are they willing and able to talk about privilege? Are they willing and able to talk about bias until, and they don't have to be experts on it, but until they've got a comfort level talking about it in front of employees, it's still sending a message about what the level of engagement and what the level of seriousness is. In order for people to start feeling comfortable about asking more questions, in your opinion, what is you know, a starting point? Is there a book, an article, or a research paper, something that you would recommend that people start off reading if they have no idea, they've heard a lot about it, they want to be politically correct, but they also want to read up on something? What would you recommend that people start off on their reading list with? One of the wonderful things about today is that we have access to a lot of resources. There are no shortage of articles and white papers and TED Talks about this set of issues. This is a broad set of issues. There's a lot of stuff in this conversations. And I could probably list 25 or 50 books that I think pretty highly of. One's at the top of mind right now for me because it's fairly recent is 
Jennifer Brown's new book. She's got a book, I think it's called Diversity Inclusion, The New Workplace and the Will to Change. And it's just come out within the past six months or so. I think um, all of her work is wonderful. Her book is wonderful. But she's also spent time thinking about, you know, the topic that we're talking about. If you're a CEO and you're on board with this, but maybe you're not deeply grounded in it, well, where do you start and how do you move that conversation forward? I think there's some very applicable stuff in her book for that CEO. What's a controversial point of view that you hold about talent acquisition or diversity and inclusion or, you know, individual performance within the organization that most other people don't? I don't know how controversial it is. Some people don't like it. I cling pretty tightly to the belief that diversity means difference. That's what the word means, even though we use it in a lot of different ways. Some people aren't crazy about that definition, but that's the one that I find in the dictionary. I haven't found a good reason to use a different one. I don't know how controversial it is. I know that not everyone is crazy about it, but that's probably as close as I can get to being terribly controversial. There's always the conversation around, is there enough budget allocated to improving workforce balance? If they had $1,000 to improve DNI initiatives or workforce balance within the organization, what's a concrete step that they could take? I think it kind of depends on the organization, the professions or the industries involved. I, I know the research that I've looked at says one of the most effective DNI interventions is targeted recruiting efforts. So that might be something to consider. I know some organizations have done a good job of, and I think you can do this pretty cheaply, of having open houses and inviting people from the community into the organization, actually giving them a chance to get to know the organization rather than as simply a branding campaign, getting to know the organization, seeing the different kinds of jobs in the organizations, meeting some of the people in the organization, not just recruiters. If you had to look yourself in the mirror and you saw your evil twin, what would your evil twin advise you on, you know, how you should go about improving DNI? I think my evil twin would probably recommend a one-year moratorium on hiring straight white men, but only my evil twin. What's a long-held professional belief in this space that over time that you've had to change because you've learned something new or you've discovered something that you didn't know of earlier? I think there's probably been a number of beliefs that have changed over the past 15 years. One of them is has just changed within the past few years. I, for most of this period of time, I've known, even when I wasn't using the language unconscious bias, I've known that that's where a lot of the work is. I didn't really believe there was much in the category of conscious bias. I didn't think there was a lot of intentional prejudice, hatred. I thought that was kind of an outlier kind of thing. And I've come to believe there's a lot more of that. On the topic of bias, there's also some controversial opinion, one of Dr. Jordan Peterson. What are your reflections on his point of view on the issues around implicit bias association testing and even going about fixing it through unconscious bias training? You know, there's people out there that are very committed to saving us from the tyranny of political correctness. Some of that criticism has been directed at the implicit association test. I personally believe the implicit association test is a pretty wonderful resource. It's not a diagnostic. It shouldn't be used as a diagnostic, but that doesn't mean that it's not a valuable tool. I think it's a good awareness tool. And I think that there are still a lot of challenges with unconscious bias training, partially because it's a pretty new field. It's very much in its infancy. I I don't know of any field that doesn't have some issues and some blind spots in its infancy. We're in the process of figuring out what works and what doesn't work. I said earlier that I think one of our big opportunities is in redesigning our processes because I think changing people's biases is a thing that happens. 
I can see that it's happened in my lifetime, but I think it's a pretty slow thing. I think the individual has to be pretty committed to it. And we're just never going to get rid of the bulk of the bias through that way, at least through the methods that we're using today. But I think that the training is still valuable, even if it's just as a tool for awareness, even if it's not changing people's behavior, it's simply good management practice to have a little bit more insight into how the human brain works and how we make decisions. If we aren't aware of that stuff and don't keep it in front of us, then we kind of serve it instead of the other way around. So I, I very much appreciate that work. There's a tremendous amount of research on, I think, over 200 specific cognitive biases that are pretty present in humans. There's no shortage of research on that. It comes from social psychology, the field Dr. Peterson claims to belong in. It comes from behavioral economics. It comes from social neuroscience. The fact that it's there is very clear and not controversial. Is there some confusion around what to do about it, what the best way to change it is? Absolutely. And we'll continue to work on that moving forward. But I think to use that as justification to not do anything, well, I, I think that speaks for itself. If you had to pick the lesser of two evils, you know, one being a team of intellectually diverse people or a team of physically diverse people, which one would you go for and why? I don't know that you can completely separate the two. There's a lot of talk about cognitive diversity or diversity of thought or intellectual diversity. And, and a lot of the research on decision-making is connected to that. And I think that's really good research, but I think we've almost gotten in the habit of talking about it as completely separate from identity diversity. And I, and I don't think we can completely divorce the two. Who I am, what my life experience has been, how I've been treated by the world is one of the things that informs how I see things and how I interpret things and how I process information. So I think there's some value in talking about specific kinds of difference, but we can't, we can't separate any of those things. My identity is made out of a whole bunch of different things. There's a hundred thousand points of difference between you and I, and it's all part of the same equation. So coming to the individual and uh, yourself particularly, I'd like to get into a few things around how do you set yourself up for success on a daily basis? Because you work from home, you work remotely, you're on the road a lot. What do you do every day when you wake up to set yourself up for a great day? I think that probably the most important habit that I've developed for putting in a productive day is to schedule my time. If I don't schedule my day, I am gifted at wasting just huge chunks of time just disappear from my calendar. And so one of the things that I try to do, especially when I'm working from home, is at the end of this day, I want to have tomorrow scheduled out. And pretty specific, I tend to break things down in 45-minute chunks. I schedule that whole day, what I'm going to do. And I don't always stick perfectly to the schedule, but I stick pretty close. That drives a lot more productivity than kind of just going into the day with a list of things to do. And is there any particular way you like to end your day? Just about always in my day with reading. I'm a reader. I always have been. And so that's usually how I end the day with a, with a book. Of the number of things that you do, what are some top three things that have helped you be successful over the years? I think reading has been very important to me. All of my reading isn't work-related, but a lot of it is. Um, I read a lot of books related to my work and research papers and journal articles. I think it's really important to just expose yourself to a lot of different information, different ideas, different language. Writing is also very important, and not just writing for an article or for a blog, but one of the things that I've discovered about writing is that it helps me clarify and pursue my own thinking. And so journaling, writing stuff out has been a pretty valuable practice. And I think the third thing is that I've been either good or lucky at surrounding myself with pretty smart people. Smart people that, again, have exposed me to different ideas, different points of view, especially coming into this work. I wasn't born into this work. I come from a very different point of view on this set of issues. And so when I found this work and I felt pulled towards it, 
I was really starting from zero or maybe even less than zero. And so along the way, there's been a lot of very smart, very kind, very patient people that have guided me and mentored me and had conversations with me. That's also been incredibly valuable. So if you want to read Joe or read about the stuff he's learning about, you can find him on Twitter at Joe Gerstand or visit his blog at www.joegerstand.com. Joe, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, do subscribe to this podcast, click on the like button or share it. You can also comment below and let us know what you think or who we should interview. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is brought to you by Gap Jumpers. If you fear that unconscious bias is harming your hiring process, then we can help you analyze, spot and fix this using our AI-driven tools. To learn more, go to gapjumpers.com. Thank you for listening to the Slightly Evil podcast.